iPad, your iPhone, or the sermon outline that has the scripture of John 2 on it. I'm going to be reading the first 11 verses. This is God's word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. We're in a series as we're making a spiritual journey with John, the gospel writer of the Gospel of John, through the life of Christ. And John is making a number of claims that Jesus is not simply a wandering rabbi, good teacher, but he is God. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah that was promised from long ago come to restore the relationship that has now become separated from God, to restore God's chosen people, his people, to himself by means of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, at this point, gives the first of seven signs in the Gospel of John, and the number is up for debate. But in the Gospel of John, there are seven distinct signs that point Jesus Christ out as being this very promised Messiah. And this morning, we're going to look at the first sign which is the turning of water into wine that points to him as being the one. Now, I want to plant a seed question with you. Why this sign? At the beginning of his ministry, he is going to now have, he's approximately 30 years of age, he's going to have three years of public ministry. This is his coming out, as it were, into public ministry saying, Now I am about my father's business. I am about reconciling men to God. The kingdom has come. I have come. The first miracle is wine. 
why wouldn't it be healing? Why wouldn't it be the, the turning of, uh, the breaking of bread so that it multiplies and feeds 5,000? Why this sign as the first sign in the first miracle? And I hope that we answer that by the end of our time together. But I want you to, to see this morning, as we look at an outline of this text, that the wine is not really the subject of this event and instance. If you look at verse 10, it says that there the master of the feast goes on about the good wine being kept until now. But in verse 11, it says that Jesus did this at Cana and he manifested his glory. So in other words, the wine of verse 10, the good wine of verse 10, is not the subject. Verse 11, and the glory of Jesus Christ is the theme and the focus. The wine is a sign that points to him. Or, as all good wine at a festival celebration around a wedding would do, it would point to the host. It would point to the bridegroom. So the wine, the very best wine, good wine, points to a good Savior. It points to a good bridegroom who is in love with his bride and who will not only celebrate with her to quench the thirst of all that celebrate, but he would put himself forward and say, I am the wine that satisfies the thirst that you have in life. So without further ado, I do want to get into the outline, but first let me tell you, I love weddings. I could... I. I thought about a couple of wedding illustrations and I thought, man, this, this sermon would grow to be an hour easy with just all the fantastic experiences that I've had at weddings. But as I meet with couples to talk about the order of service at the wedding and the ceremony itself, I always suggest that they pick out an item to communicate to all those in attendance that they love one another and that they are in union in their love with one another. Now, traditionally, many couples choose the unity candle, where they light the two candles, and then they light the center candle. The two have become one. Um, One couple chose to have strands of yarn that they would take out of three strands, and as it says in in, in Ecclesiastes, that a cord of three strands is not easily broken, so they would... They would together go and they would tie the three strands together. I had one individual uh, pull out a guitar uh, to the surprise of all the guests and get down on one knee and play and sing a song that he wrote for his bride that day. I had another couple that washed one another's feet. One of my favorite Uh, things to celebrate is where a couple chooses to join hands and take a piece of Scottish tartan. It's called a hand fast. And you tie the knot as I make statements of these two and their love uniting with one another. This morning, 
when you leave here, I hope that when you think of wine and good wine, the best wine, that you won't simply think alone about good wine and your taste buds and um, the, the, the feelings of your four from a glass of wine, but that you'll think of what the wine points to. You'll think of that great promised wedding feast for those who are followers of Jesus Christ that we're promised to be in attendance of, we're promised to be there as his bride. So that the wine this morning, that from this point on, that wine will cause you to reflect and it'll point to him, the bridegroom. Even as it does in a wedding, the sign and the imagery is but a sign, but it points to the seal of that couple's love to one another. Three things I want to show you this morning in the time that remains. First of all, I want to show you that the wine ran out, that there was a, a shortage, and no substitution was found to meet the shortage. Secondly, I want to show you, I want to show you a woman of great, great humility and faith who surrendered to Jesus Christ as the supplier and the sole supplier of good wine. And then thirdly, I want to show you this morning that there is a sign of good wine and it points to something better than just wine. It points to the source of the best wine that is found even in himself, Jesus Christ. So let's look first of all at verses 1 and 3 and see the, the shortage of good wine. It tells us in verse 3 that the wine ran out. This is a disaster. We don't really see it so much, but there's two things that you need to know about this culture. Number one, in this culture, a wedding lasts a long time. It would be, at best, there, there might be only one or two weddings in a community annually. And all the community would be invited. And it would last for days. And you were expected to provide both food and beverage, not only for those that travel great distances and that would stay there, but it was a, a, an ongoing buffet. And for this celebration to take place, there was the necessity to have food and drink. And wine in this culture was seen as the joy enabler. And yes, it was intoxicating, even though we believe that it would have been you know, watered down somewhat, um, not to, to spoil the taste, but to, to thin it a little bit. That's what he means when he says later, the master of the feast, the poor wine is safe for last. In other words, it, as it gets to be the end of the party, they're going for the wine that's a little more sour and the wine that's a little more watered down. Secondly, this is a culture of shame. It's a culture of shame so that to not be able to provide, to not be able to succeed was a brand of embarrassment. More than that, it was, a, 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 it was the scarlet letter, if it were. You failed. You were unworthy. 
and people would remember the failure, that they would remember the day the wine ran out, and it would be a mark of shame. Poor planning, I'll never go there again, have nothing to do with them. If they can't provide wine, then what else can they not provide? Mary, in all likelihood, Mary and Jesus were related as family members to either the bride or, I suspect, the bridegroom. They were at minimal, they were at least good, good friends. But Mary is positioning herself as if she's the event planner itself or a caterer because she takes personal responsibility for the wine when it runs out. Now, it is up to the bridegroom to provide for the wine. And she is protecting, as it were, or she's taking responsibility and saying, I don't want the scandal on the bridegroom. Jesus, the wine has run out for one of our family members. Jesus, one of our family members who should be providing is failing. They're going down. Mary had choices when she was faced with a shortage. Are choices that we have when the wine in our own life runs out. First of all, she could have ended the party right there. She could have said, it's over. Folks, go home. There is no party. There is no plan for joy. It's just over. What we, you came together to celebrate, and we began to celebrate, and now it is just died, and the balloons are coming down to the floor, and the confetti needs to be swept up. The party's over. Go home. There's no provision for joy. Maybe you know of instances in your own life where you started out and it holds so much promise, a relationship, a marriage, a job, a new hobby, and it promised so much fulfillment and joy, and then the wine ran out. And your choice was to simply say, I'll never look again to be happy. Just a stoic's attitude of the wine's run out, let's just turn the lights out and go home. Let's just endure, let's just survive, but there is no joy. Secondly, she could have looked to herself, and I think that's two, there's two expressions of when we look at ourselves. Number one, I can defend myself, or I can depend on myself. Defend on myself is to shift blame. The wine's run out. It's your fault. The wine ran out. It's their fault. We blame shift. Or, the wine ran out, and this is a little bit more of my bent, a little toward codependency and depending on myself, where I get more joy at a party or a get-together when people are having fun, I take joy from people taking joy. And if people aren't happy, then I'm not happy. And so I could see where there's those individuals that they would depend on themselves where Mary had a choice to say, okay, guys, just stay right here, stay right here, don't go anywhere, don't, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, Look, get the, the burrow on the cart, and listen, I've got a little bit of money tucked aside, 
It's going to take me about three hours, but I'm going to go to the village. Hey, eat a little more lamb, a little more bread. I'll be back. Don't worry, don't worry. She makes a beer run. No. She didn't try to fix it. A third choice. A third choice is to simply drink the water. Substitute water in the absence of good wine. Put something, put something else in the place of the best with the hopes that it will satisfy. But it does not. She could have said, look, sorry, we ran out of wine, so, but there's plenty of water to quench your thirst. It was more than thirst. It was the, the, the lubricant of joy, as it were. It was the life of the party. The wine, the wine aided the celebration. It wasn't the same to raise a glass of H2O to the bride. It wasn't the same. There in our society, we do this a lot. A biggest example is we substitute sex, we substitute sex for true intimacy. We think, I, I want intimacy with this person. I, I love them so much. I, I want to share my life with this person and them to share their life with me. And yet, along the way, we substitute for the real wine of intimacy, we substitute water with just the physical and sex. Where are you in your life? It may not be that with you, but where in your life have you put and found that it's, it's tasteless? It's not the same. It began well, but then the wine ran out, and then there's, there's just a substitute. Well, I'll just do this, but it's not working anymore. Or you thought it would be so great, that, that, that new job, or that new possession, or that new endeavor. It's, it's going to be so great, but then it just gets the same. It's just water now. Mary, secondly, surrenders to Jesus. We see this in verse 3 and verse 4, where she comes to him and states what he would have observed, and that is, they have no more wine. The stewards are not serving any more wine. The wine is out. And it's put in such a way as to say directly to him, they have no wine, what are you going to do? And theologians and commentaries have had a lot to say about the language of Jesus' response. Because basically it's, woman, what have you to do with me? Or, what have I to do with such as you and your problem? D.A. Carson makes this comment about Mary and the, the distance now that Jesus puts between a mother and a son. He, that is Jesus, has embarked on his ministry, the purpose of his coming. His only lodestar is his heavenly Father's will. In other words, a lodestar is like a north star. So that he's focused now on his Father's will. This must have been extremely difficult for Mary 
She has borne him, nursed him, taught his baby fingers elementary skills, watched him fall over as he learned to walk. Apparently, she had also come to rely on him as the family provider. Joseph, by the way, we don't read of anything to indicate that Joseph is still alive at this point. She could no longer view him as other mothers viewed their sons. She must no longer be allowed the prerogatives of motherhood. It is remarkable that everywhere from here on that Mary appears during the course of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is at pains to establish distance between them. Jesus appears to be very abrupt. He appears to be disturbed by her request or her implied request. It's as if Jesus is interrupted with someone saying, hey, they've run out of wine, and him saying, what what has that got to do with me? I see something else. I see something else based on the understanding that we have of Jesus at this point in his life moving forward. I do not believe that this was a that Jesus was disrupted as much as Jesus was distracted. Bear with me a moment. Bear with me. If you go in your Bibles to Jeremiah 25, verse 15 and 16. Jeremiah 25, verse 16, verse 15 and 16. And what we read here is God's view of a cosmic cup. In other words, there's a cup that is spoken of in the Old Testament. And it's a cup that has wine in it. And it's a cup that is going to come into the world to be drunk from before the end of the world. And before man can be reconciled to God, that cup must be drunk, emptied, down to the dregs. Well, what kind of wine does that cup contain? Verse 15 Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand, that's God's hand, this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Drink my wrath! Drink my cup, nations! They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Jesus Christ has this cup. I submit to you that Jesus Christ has this cup on his mind. That Jesus Christ going to a wedding feast... He went there because he was invited, but there is never any one step that is unintentional with Jesus. Jesus does not go to a wedding feast where he would see the the huge urns holding water for purification and not think about purification 
and the ceremony to wash away sin, the ceremony to wash away sin in order to be clean at a wedding. He doesn't see the wedding guest eating bread without thinking about himself. He doesn't see the cups of wine and the wine flowing without thinking about the wine that is spoken of in the Old Testament. He doesn't see the cup without thinking about a cup that he will drink from. The code and the giveaway here is in verse 4. My hour has not yet come. You see, when Mary comes to him with her implied request, Jesus Christ has all of this on his mind and is captured in his hour. And you can read about his hour in John chapter 17, verse 1, where Jesus begins his prayer in the garden, moments before being seized, to be falsely tried, to be beaten within an inch of his life, to be nailed to, to crossbeams and hung out naked for everybody to see him on the crossbeams. He bring, begins his prayer this way. Father, the hour has come. Not the hour was when I was being celebrated and even pushed to the brink to be they, they wanted to make me king. Man, that was my hour. Nope. He says, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. His hour that he has in his mind is the hour that he will shed his blood like wine for his people's thirst. The hour that he has in mind is he can look to that cup and he says, there's a day coming. My hour, I am beginning my ministry here. I am beginning my ministry here. And there's an hour at the end of my ministry where I, as I begin my ministry with the sign of good wine, I'm going to end my ministry with a sign of good wine poured out. I begin my ministry by pouring out good wine for people to drink at a wedding. But at the end of my ministry, I will pour out my blood that I might as a bridegroom have union with the bride as they drink from that wine and satisfy their thirst forever. That is the sign that points to the source of all good wine, all good joy, and everything else is but a substitute. And Mary, I love Mary. Mary doesn't walk off in a huff and go, Phew! Mary surrendered to that sign. She surrendered by turning to the servants and saying, Obey him. Do whatever he tells you to do. Obey him. She is a believer in her son. I like it. It's a side road and I can't fully tease it out. But, you know, Jesus has two parents. Even for Jesus, it takes two to have a baby. 
God is his father. Mary is his mother. Here you have the mother looking to the son and looking to all the servants all around, and she would tell anybody, do what he says. The father, God the father, at the transfiguration, comes to Jesus when he's revealed there with those intimate band of disciples on the mountaintop that he is the son. A voice from heaven says, this is my son, obey him. Do whatever he says. Listen to his words. Jesus, at the wedding feast, is listening. I believe he never faces, he doesn't even go to a wedding that except he has his father's words on his mind so that he can see a cup and he can think of his father's will. I pray for two rivers that we would have that kind of spiritual schizophrenia so that our world, we never look at our world except impacted by God's word. So that it forms a grid. So that as I look out on my world, as I go to a wedding, as I go to the workplace, as I go to my class, as I go into my relationship, as I go into my neighborhood, wherever I am going, that I see life through my Father and His will. And there will be those surprises such that we can contemplate a cup or contemplate good wine and it will lead us to an aha moment to see Jesus in the everyday and in the mundane, seemingly mundane, And Jesus here, this great sign of the good wine, points to him. This A sign always points beyond itself. A sign is not a sign to be a sign. A sign is to point to something else. And this morning, as we prepare to come to this table, this table is a sign. Now, I've got a dilemma. And I've had this dilemma for a little while. We, uh, a couple of years ago, Wendy and I flew out to uh, Napa Valley to do a wedding. And it was very, very interesting because um, we loved, we went out a couple of days early to tour uh, the wine country of Napa Valley. Wendy and I really enjoy good wine. Um, And so we went out there a couple of days early the, the wedding party after the wedding ceremony uh, was in a winery. It was actually down uh, in their cellar. And there were these huge casks all over these places filled with great wine. And I mean, I loved it. I mean, you've got the best of wine on the tables. You're in an environment that you can just smell the wine in the air in this cellar. The father of the bride in our culture the father of the bride pays for the, the wedding banquet. In this culture, Jesus' culture, the bridegroom paid for it. Some of you are saying if you have uh, daughters, you wouldn't mind changing that again. But the father of the bride, who was the host, he was the master as it was of the feast, was a teetotaler. He didn't drink. And he had a dilemma. Because he was supposed to, at one point... At the start, he was going to 
raise his glass and have the couple come in and everybody raise their glass to this, these newlyweds. But he said, you know, I don't drink. And he said, I, a lot of people know that I don't drink, so just holding up a glass of wine and then not completing the toast, that's, that's bad etiquette. And he says, holding up a glass of water, is that's, that's not good. So, Phil, would you do the toast? Would you, in my place, have everybody raise their glass as the couple come in and we toast them? And I said, absolutely. I will do that. And uh, I, I know this gentleman very well and the couple very well. I, uh, I said, I'm going to do that. And under my breath, I'm going to pray that as you raise your glass of water over there on the side of the room, that it turns into wine. I am going to pray that. But because we were in a winery, the wine never ran out. And I had to be very careful that I did not drink too much wine because it would not... They, I mean, there was more... You would have had to have, you know, a hundred gallons a person for the wine to run out. I bought a bottle of wine before we left because the wine really was good. And it's been a number of years ago... Uh, This says 2005, and I don't know when to open this. When do you open really, really good wine? And I keep having occasions in my life, but they just don't seem special enough to open this bottle of wine. Now, somebody at the door is going to say, well, now, wait a minute, we were over at your house, and you didn't think we were special enough? Okay. Um, I'll remedy that in the future. Jesus says this morning, as you prepare to come to this table, don't hold back. Don't drink my wine with a little wine stopper. I mean, not wine stopper, but a wine, uh, with a dropper. Don't drink my wine with a stopper. Drink a glass. He makes this wine. He goes to the, the old laws of purification to try to wash away your sin. And he says, I replace it at this table with my blood, which is the new covenant. It's the new promise. No longer water, all wine. Wine that I provide, and I provide from my own veins for the washing away of sins. Drink, come, and take of this wine and recognize my death on your behalf and drink to intoxication. And I don't mean physical drunkenness, but spiritual intoxication. Staggering with joy at what He has provided for the celebration of His union with His people. George Herbert writes, He who knows not love, let him take and taste that juice which on the cross a nail against a beam did loose. Then let him say, if ever he did taste the like, love is that liqueur, sweet and so divine, which my God tastes as blood and I taste as wine. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, 
We have wine and bread set before us this morning. And would you set it aside and turn it into the best wine? And may we not save it, but may we drink it now. And may we drink it in abundance. For we are a people who raise our glass not to forget, but we raise our glass to remember. To remember the great love you have for your people such that you would call us the bride. And we need not look for a substitute, but we drink and remember that you are ours and we are yours in the new covenant forever as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite